uh, I need you to pray with me, um, not just for me speaking, but for our yielding to the word. Let's ask him for that. Uh, Lord, we, we know that if we just uh, come to the table with our own devices, we, may, we might gain some knowledge, we might gain some insight into what the text says, uh, but our hearts won't be able to grasp it. Our minds won't be able to understand it in a spiritual way. Uh, we won't be able to yield to it. So we ask that you would uh, make your word clear, um, help my weaknesses to get out of the way, um, and that what we would remember when we leave here is what the Bible says, what you teach, and may it transform our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, we are um, moving through the doctrinal statement of our church, and if any of you are curious as to what it says or what sermons are coming up next or what we just recently covered, you can go to our website, christianfc.org, and in the left menu, you'll see a tab, What We Believe. Click that, and there it is, seven statements of what the church believes. Now, it's impossible for each of these messages to unpack everything that's in each of those statements. There's so much but we're trying to hit some of the basic parts or a part of it that maybe we haven't addressed in a while or something like that. But when I got to the statement on the Holy Spirit, I decided to do two parts on that one. Um, and last week we talked about, um, well I talked, you listened uh, very kindly, um, about uh, the work of the Holy Spirit as He indwells, as He indwells us. That means we are His holy temples. Each and every individual Christian is now a temple versus the Old Testament. There was a location, a temple they had to go to. Radically different, and it means a lot for how we live our lives. But today I want to talk about something a little bit different. Um, and it's one that if somebody were given a two-part series on the Holy Spirit, um, I think most times this wouldn't make it. In fact, I pulled three or four systematic theologies, these big big textbooks of theology, and I was looking for a chapter on this, and almost all of them in my library didn't have a section on this. I was very disappointing to me, because this is my favorite. This is my favorite work of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to hit the pause button on that a minute and talk about an issue that this topic resolves. Most of us have had... Various backgrounds represented here at CFC in terms of how we grew up. Some of us grew up Catholic, some of us grew up Baptist, some of us grew up with nothing, some of us grew up, you know, non-denominational, whatever. But most churches debate about this question. Once you were saved, are you always saved from that point on? Another way to ask it. Once you're saved, is it possible to lose that salvation? Now, some of you very strongly right now might be thinking to yourselves, no! Some of you might be thinking very strongly, well, of course you can lose it. It's hotly debated. But I think most backgrounds, uh, intentionally or unintentionally, raise Christians to believe or raise people to believe or to have a faith that your salvation can be lost from one day to the next from one month to the next, from one year to the next, and that you might have been saved back in 2005 or whatever, but now 2015, 
that may not be the case. What was genuine in 2005 may not be genuine anymore or might have been genuine and you lost it. I know a lot of you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church and I, I learn a lot from hearing your stories because that isn't my background, but from my outsider perspective, I always thought it odd or strange, uh, very burdensome that the practice is to go and confess. You slide the little door open and you're supposed to not be able to tell who it is. I don't know what's up with the little screen there, you know. And uh, you confess sins. And my, my thought has always been, how are you ever done? How can that session be finished? Unless you're pretty good. You're good enough to even know the sins that a lot of us commit unintentionally. You've got to rewind back throughout the day. I would have to go to that booth three times a day. There's some people that exercise three times a day. I've got to confess my sins six times a day. On my way to work, I thought something bad. I didn't handle my, that situation with my child correctly. But you've got to go to that confession booth to get things fixed and do your penance because if you don't do your penance, you're going to be in a place that you're not supposed to be. Now, I don't know exactly how they, you know, what's purgatory and what puts you out and how it works. But penance needs to be done. Confession needs to happen to maintain this salvation. Now, some of us in here go, Catholics, <laughs> ridiculous. Are we so different? I grew up in churches that will tell you, you need to make sure you keep what God gave you in salvation. Because if you mess up, you're out. And you got to come back in. you got to repent again. Get saved again. Now that, that is a spiritual paranoia that if you take it to its logical extreme, should drive you crazy. Because the question is the same that you would ask of Catholics. Well, how much sin puts me out? And I, how, how, how bad is bad enough that it put me out and I need to Place my trusting faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior again. In the front flap of my Bible, when I was 12, I wrote, this is the day I got saved. i got to add another one. This is the day I got saved again. Maybe I should have a few blank pages. Some Bibles have a few blank pages. I was just asking Tina the other day. She got a new Bible in the mail. I'm like, why is there like five blank pages in the beginning? Maybe that's for people that believe you can lose your salvation and they can record all the times they got resaved. I mean, I don't mean to poke fun. But you have to realize that if you believe that you can lose your salvation, your next logical question is, how do you lose your salvation? You better figure it out. Otherwise, you don't know. And if you don't know how bad a sin puts you out, then you can't know if you're out. And if you can't know if you're out, then you can't know if you're in, and you have zero assurance of salvation. Now, I would believe that if that's what the Bible taught. In fact, I grew up believing that. But one of the ultimate reasons why I don't believe that is because the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit seals us. I'm assured of my salvation because of the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. And to see that, we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is one of the thickest chapters in the Bible. By thick, I don't mean the length of it. By thick, I mean the content of it. And we're not going to walk through the entire chapter. But Ephesians chapter 1 is one place where we see very clearly 
not in any confused way, that the Holy Spirit does a work that seals redemption for us. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's drop down to verse 11. Drop down to verse 11. Now, Paul opens up this chapter, and this entire first section is about redemption, how God has saved us. And he emphasizes very strongly, without mincing words, he even uses some words some of us don't like, like predestined. Okay, before the foundation of the world, before you had anything to do with it, God set up the plan of redemption. What is Paul's em- emphasis? What is he emphasizing in this chapter? He's hitting it hard. What he's hitting hard is that salvation is a work of God, it's not a work of you. And extends into chapter 2. It's replete throughout the Bible. Salvation is a work of God and it's not a work of you. And then what he culminates in is verses 11 through 15. That's what we're gonna, 11 through 14, that's what we're going to look at now. Salvation is not our work. Salvation is God's work. And, and here's how he wants to punctuate that. In him we have obtained in Christ. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. Who does the work? Christ works all things. The Father works through Christ all things according to the counsel of his will. So that the purpose so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you heard the word of truth, He's speaking about a time when you got it. The light bulb came on. That was at a Christian camp. That was around a bonfire. That was your grandmother leading you to the Lord at your bedside. That was when you had a really tough time back in 2000 whatever, and you gave your life to Christ, and you wrote that in your Bible, or you logged in your brain, man, that was my moment of conversion. That's when you heard the word of truth, and you understood it as truth. That's what he means. He says, he says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, not, and you did enough to add to it. No, you believed in him. It was an element of faith. When that happened, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He doesn't mean until we acquire possession of it because it's still a question mark. He mean it's sealed until we fully get it. And so... There's a couple things to unpack here. The Holy Spirit is called a seal. Now, sometimes you have to go back deep into the ancient culture, right? To figure out what did Paul mean by seal, because it may not be what me mean by it. And as much as I've dug and gone deep, it means what we mean. They just had different ways of doing it, and we've gotten a little more elaborate, but it's the same thing. There's three different purposes for a seal. Okay. The first one is to confirm that something's genuine. A seal is used to confirm that something is the real deal. It's the genuine article. Okay. Uh, you go somewhere where they're used to uh, some unruly characters being the clientele there, and you give them a large bill. You give them $100 or whatever. And one of them calls the manager over to check it. And they might strike it with a pen or they'll hold it up to the light to look for a strip or look for a seal or some hologramic something. They keep changing it, right? But there's marks on that currency to denote that it's real currency and not counterfeit. That's what a seal does. A seal marks that it's genuine. My passport 
right next to my picture has the seal of the United States on it. This guy's good. Right? It's a seal marking that this is authentic and he didn't just Photoshop it and print it at Kinko's. Okay? That's what a seal does. Another way a seal works is to mark something as one's property. You think if you had a branding iron with your logo on it and you had cattle and you branded the cattle, all the other cowboys would know that's my cattle. Okay? Everyone would know that belongs to somebody. A seal works in that way as well. Or uh, my uncle, when I grew up, he would take an embossing, I don't know what you call this, it would crimp the first page of your book, any book that you have. He would crimp the first page and it had a seal on it with his name around the circle. That's my book. You might borrow it, but you need to bring it back because it's mine. It was such a cool looking seal. It made an impression on me like, wow, that book is stamped with his, you know, Kind of nerdy, but whatever. I always thought I'd get one, but I don't have one. Anyway, confirm that something's genuine. Confirm that something belongs to somebody else. The third use of a seal is to make something secure. Okay, uh, they, you know, Back then they would take a roll of parchment and hold the seams together and put a drop of wax and then with somebody's ring, stamp that wax. That's my seal. I'm the one who sent this. If this seal is broken when it got to you, don't trust the contents. Someone might have added something. Someone could have taken a page out. Someone could have changed it. That might not even be from me. If it's from me, it's going to be sealed with the logo that you recognize and it's going to be an unbroken sealed of, seal of wax. That's the same for us today. If you go to the if you go to Jewel, you go get a jar of jam or preserves or pickles or something, and you bring it home and you go to open it and it doesn't go. It doesn't do that. It just goes. Do you eat those pickles? I hope you don't. We know that it might have been tampered with. The seal wasn't there. It didn't even have the plastic seal around the metal top before you hear that sound pop. That's how a seal functions it's no different in ancient times than it is today if somebody gives you medication here you go over the counter and you bring it home and you open it and there's not that little uh plastic sheet on the top that you have to peel the cotton's missing don't take that don't take those pills right because the seal's been tampered with and what does that let you know it lets you know that this may not be what it's supposed to be this may not be what I was told me that I was purchased. Somebody said that this was this, and it may not be that. It's not protected. It might be tampered with. It might be stained with something, tainted with something. And so some commentators go, well, which aspect of the seal was it? My response is, pick one. They all mean the same thing. If the Holy Spirit is the seal of your salvation, then that means it's untampered with. It means God lets everybody know this is mine. This is mine, no one else's. And it's not even yours. You can't stamp it with your seal. God stamps it with his seal. Salvation is not yours to keep, it's God's to keep because it's his. And so whichever way you look at it, a mark of it being the genuine thing, a mark that it's not going to be tampered with, a mark that God is going to secure it, God's stamp of approval, his seal is the Holy Spirit in your life. That runs directly contrary to the thinking that you can lose your salvation. Because if you can lose it, then it's not sealed. Well, can't somebody break a seal? Can you break God's seal? 
You know, we keep updating our seals. What if we do this to the, to the currency and put a new mark? Because people keep, they're able to counterfeit this thing. Or, you know, we're not just going to do the top that pops, but we're also going to do this, this uh, plastic wrap around the top and shrink wrap it on the top, you know, and, and double seal. I'm sure in a few years we'll have something else that even makes it more sealed. But I don't know if you ever get a Christmas present and it takes me 40 minutes to get the thing out because it's protected against thieves and I'm like stabbing it with knives and it's the thickest plastic ever. I think they use this for the windows on space shuttles. I don't, I don't know what this material is made out of. I'm cutting myself this ridiculous plastic. Then you finally open the plastic and everything's tied down with a million tie wires, okay? Listen, we can keep upgrading all that, but if God makes a seal, it's sealed because he's God. Why would God make a seal and say, hey, I've put a seal on this. Anybody can tamper with it, but at least I started off. It was a good intention, right? No, if God seals something, it's done. It's sealed. It's protected. It's the genuine thing, and he's going to see it through. Now, that's how a seal works, but just in case that wasn't enough, just in case we're like, well, we can look at seal a different way somehow, he makes it clear in verse 14 that this seal is the guarantee He's the guarantee of our inheritance. We shouldn't have to walk around thinking, am I, am I going to get this inheritance? Am I going to make it all the way? Do I have it today? I was pretty sure I had it yesterday because worship felt pretty good. But today is Monday and it's really, the, the weather stinks. And I, I, I had some bad feelings about my coworker. And, uh, maybe I'm not there today. Is there a Monday night worship service where I can go and repent? I mean, you, you'd have to live like that. Because it's not guaranteed. But it is guaranteed. If you've placed your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean you did it. It means he did it. And if you question the validity of your salvation, then you're questioning the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Or maybe your question, did you put faith in him? That's a different question. But if you've put your faith in him, the Holy Spirit is a seal. And what is the reality of having a promised holy spirit that functions as a seal verse 14 he's the guarantee of our inheritance it's the guarantee now that word guarantee has been used in different ways um and there's two different ways to look at it It could be a pledge or a down payment a first installment it's a technical financial term that they're translating as guarantee now that technical financial term can be a pledge, which means, uh, like in ancient times, I'm going to give you something that's special to me. I'm going to give you something that's special to me. Hold it. Hold it until I get the payment. And then when I give you the payment, I take that special object back. But if I'm unable to pay, you get to keep this object. But this is so special to me that you know I'm going to be good on this payment. Understand? That's a pledge. Or a first installment or a down payment is a little bit different because the first thing that I'm giving you is not something that you're going to give me back. It's the first payment of many payments to come. Now, which one does Paul mean? Again, pick one. That doesn't really matter. He's not trying to get into financial. This isn't a financial seminar. What Paul's trying to teach is that the Holy Spirit is guaranteeing what's coming. Whether you see it as a down payment, a first installment, a, a pledge, both of them eventually break down. There's no more Holy Spirits that he's going to give you. And he's not going to take the Holy Spirit back and give you something else, right? So it's just a financial analogy, a financial picture to help you understand how the Holy Spirit functions to secure, 
to guarantee our inheritance. It is so clear. It is so clear that I don't, I don't see how we can read it another way. The Holy Spirit is a seal. We are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. Someone might ask, well, someone can put a down payment and not pay the rest. Someone can give you a pledge and then, oops, they disappeared. You thought they cared about that object, but they really don't. You're right. Some people can do that. Would God? And that's in the text. You remember the first couple lines we read? Verse 11, we obtained an inheritance from him, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. Now verse 13, in him also when you heard what? The word of maybe? The word of sometimes true? This is why the first sermon in this doctrinal series was about the inerrancy of God's word. It's true if God says it. And if God says it, it's true. And so when God makes a pledge, you don't question it. His track record is perfect. God does not lie. And so if you put your faith in him, then by very definition you put in faith in the kind of God that he is. And he's the one who gives us the word of truth. And what I'm holding in my hand right now is God's promise. He promised the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And now in Ephesians 1, Paul's making it clear that spirit that was promised back in Joel and back in when the prophets promised the coming Holy Spirit, He's here, He resides in you, He indwells you, and part of the benefit of that is you're sealed with Him. It guarantees your inheritance. No question, no doubt. Because it's God that guarantees it. God is the one that does the sealing. And God is the one that promises it with His word of truth. It's His pledge. He's not going to go back on it. Now I find it really powerful to understand the, the thrust of what Paul is getting at in this whole chapter. He didn't write this chapter to teach us just about the Holy Spirit. That's a little piece of it. We're kind of laser focused on one small slice of it. But his overarching point is that our salvation is for God's glory. We saw that in uh, at the end of verse 12. We who are the first to hope in Christ, the reason why God did this, the reason why he predestined us according to the purpose, his purpose, that he works according to his will. Why did he do that? So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The ultimate reason why God saved someone is his glory. But it can't be 100% his glory if it's our job to keep it, our job to maintain it. God doesn't let us in the door and then we got in and then we've got to juggle things just right because if we drop something, we're out. And God goes, ah, well, I tried. No, God doesn't try. He does. And if he did it, it's secure. So when Paul brings in the Holy Spirit, he's not going, huh, let me bring in this random topic because I really want to teach him about the Holy Spirit. No, what he's doing is emphasizing his main point and his main point is your salvation is secure because God did it. God did your salvation. You didn't do your salvation. You're saved because God did it. You're not saved because something you brought to the table. We see that emphasized again in chapter 2. If you just turn the page over, or if you've got a really huge Bible, maybe you're still on the same page. But in Ephesians chapter 2, you remember these famous verses? Some of us know them by heart. Verse 8, 
How was I saved? By grace. Grace means I didn't deserve it. He gave it to me anyway. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift. Wait, what's a gift? Faith is a gift. You wouldn't even believe if God didn't give you the faith. God gave you the faith and that's why you believe. What is the difference between me and someone to the left of me who rejects God, doesn't like God, doesn't like the concept of God? I I don't want anything to do with church, but I love it. What is the difference? What What can the answer possibly be? Upbringing, uh, genetics, I'm better somehow. See, no matter what answer we come up with, something is better about me than him. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches I'm just as stinky as that guy. But he gave me a gift of faith. That's why I can see it. It is not my own doing. It's not what I bring to the table. And why does God do it that way? Why does he do it, verse 9, so that it's not a result of works, that no part of your salvation has anything to do with a work that you did? Why does he do it that way? To the praise of his glory, or to put it another way, so that no one may boast? See, if God did it in a, in a partial way, I'm, I'm not even talking about 50-50. If God did 95% of the work and left the 5% of the work for you to do, he wouldn't get 100% of the glory. He'd get 95% of the glory and you'd get 5% of the glory. You would have a little bit of room to boast. You wouldn't have all the room to boast, but you'd have a little bit of room to boast. When God walks across that celestial stage and receives glory from people, he's got to do like people do at the Oscars, Right? Give credit where credit's due. I mean, I'm the one that did the acting, and I won the award, but, you know, thanks to the director for choosing me, the casting director thought of me, uh, thanks for the co-directors that made it so easy for me to say my lines. You're giving props to people for their part in it, even though you're receiving the bulk of the glory in that trophy, right? When God walks across the celestial stage, he's not giving credit. I'd like to thank Pastor Lucas. He, he led CFC so well. If it wasn't for him, those people wouldn't be saved. And so thank you, Lucas. I give you partial credit for that. No. Thank you, Lucas. I opened the door for you, but you're the one that stepped in, Lucas. You placed your faith. You drummed it up within yourself. You were smart enough to understand the gospel. Good job. No, you're dumb. But I gave you faith. Now, I didn't always believe this, guys. I didn't always believe this. Then I started reading the Bible. I mean, not bits and pieces like my favorite parts. Read it through. It's consistent. God is after his own glory, and he's not going to share it. And in his mind, which is the mind that counts, he'd be sharing it if he split the work of salvation with you, and he doesn't. It's for his glory. Verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. You're like a broken chair that he found by a dumpster and he brought you into his garage and he's making you new. The chair had nothing to do with it. He's the craftsman, your furniture. And when you're all new and shiny and, and stained and beautiful, everyone's going to go, wow, what a craftsman. That's what he's doing in you. He gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. No chair can blow. But I sat there and allowed him to sand me down. No. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How did God prepare my works beforehand if I didn't work it yet? Because ultimately it comes from him. Therefore, he can plan it. If he needed to wait to see if Lucas, is Lucas going to have faith? I'm not sure. If he had to wait, he couldn't prepare it beforehand. But if faith is something that he gives, 
regardless of whether I'm good enough to get it or not, then he can prepare it beforehand. And he did. Now, why, why am I going into all this? Because all of this helps us understand how God seals us with the Holy Spirit. How can it possibly be a guarantee? It can't be guaranteed if you have something to do with it. God doesn't let us in and go, man, I hope you're able to maintain this now. Some people believe that you're saved totally by grace, but once you're in, now it's totally by works to maintain it. Well, that just reverts back to works. If God opens the door and I've got to come in, but I've got to perform and do everything that I can to make sure that I stay in, then that means salvation is based on what I do. And guys, I don't know about you, but if we just took an honest assessment, I'm out. I, I can't read scripture enough. I, I, can't, I can't be good enough, love purely enough. Love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind. No, it's always 50%, 60%, 20%. I don't know. How do I even? I'm too broken to even give myself a percentage. I don't even know what it's like to love him purely and perfectly. That's why Jesus had to come and do it for me. Jesus didn't come to give me a leg up to help me over the fence. Jesus came to obliterate the fence for me so I can go. It's done. There's no extra work to be done. Now, the number one objection to this doctrine, call it whatever you want, the perseverance of the saints, or once saved, always saved, or eternal security, whatever you want to call it. The number one objection is, man, the reason why I don't like that is because it gives you a license to sin. I was sitting in a church once and the pastor stood up and he said, boy, the once saved, always Christians really get under my skin. And what was, what was his point about that? Why do once saved, always saved Christians really get under his skin? It makes his skin crawl. Because he believes that when we say, God saved me, sealed me, guaranteed it, our conclusion is, now I don't have to do anything about it. I can do whatever I want. I can live how I want. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to connect with people. I don't have to do anything. Okay? The answer to that is if that's your attitude, you're not in in the first place. Because God never changed you. You were never regenerated. God takes that stony heart and puts in a heart of flesh that's able to respond to his grace. If you're still acting like a person that has a heart of stone and you're not, you're not doing anything, you're, your life hasn't changed at all, you're part of a group that's been given the message and maybe you proclaim with your mouth that you're in. But remember all the people that are going to approach the Lord one day in Matthew 7? At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' conclusion is awesome, but scary. Many are going to come to me that day. Lord, Lord, I prophesied. I cast out demons. I performed miracles. I led worship. I taught Sunday school. I preached. And he's like, I don't know you. I never knew you. Please leave. How's that possible? Because it's possible for people to fake the funk, right? It's possible for people to put up the facade, but it's not genuine. That's not someone who got saved and then lost salvation. That's someone who always thought they were saved or thinking that by doing enough things they're in, and they're never in because they didn't place their faith in Christ. They placed their faith in what they can do. That's a major difference. Now, what Paul is talking about in this passage is a, is a salvation that is secured for you because God does it. It's not secured for you because you have something to do with it. If you had a part to play in it, it would never be totally secure. But we still got to figure out if you're going to be good enough yet. How many confession sessions did you go to? Did you confess all of it? How big of a sin puts you out? How many of them did you do? How egregious was it? How many people did it affect? 
No, Paul doesn't think that being secured and sealed is licensed to sin. In fact, he uses the seal of the Holy Spirit to argue the opposite. And that's in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's just look at that really quickly. Ephesians chapter 4. Just flip over a couple of pages. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's drop down to verse 30. This Holy Spirit indwells the Christian, right? He's affected by what you do. And he's a person. He has emotions. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Why? Why shouldn't I grieve Him? Well, He's the one that sealed you for the day of redemption. Paul's argument here is, don't grieve Him. He's the one that sealed you. So when people go, well, if I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to want to just do whatever I want. No, Paul's logic is, if you were sealed by the Holy Spirit, then you're going to do things that are in accordance with the one who sealed you. You work from the reality that He sealed you. You're not working toward the possibility of getting sealed. Let me put it another way. The Bible makes it clear that we do not work toward a salvation. We don't work toward a relationship with God. We work from it. We don't do a bunch of things and hopefully we get saved. That's every other religion under the sun. What's unique about Christianity, it's not great because it's unique, but it's greatly unique, is that he doesn't expect us to work to get salvation. He gives us salvation, and when that change is real, we get to work. If somebody has no desire to please the Lord, no desire to please Him, no desire to repent, no desire to do anything, then he's not a Christian. Because to be a Christian is to repent and believe. That's how you're in. The reason why God does this is so he gets all the credit. One last verse I want to show you. We're going to put this up on the screen. I was going to put this, give this to you earlier, but I slipped my mind. I just want to make sure you get this. So this is 2 Corinthians at the end of chapter 1. All of the promises of God find their yes in him. That's Jesus Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for what? For his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. He's the one who does it. And he's the one who has anointed us. And he's the one who put a seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Didn't we just read this verse? No, he's writing this to the Corinthians too. And what were the Corinthians like? Terrible. You all would not join that church. In fact, a lot of the ones that were in there probably because it wasn't like today where you have this church and that church to choose from. Let me visit 15 websites this week and then pick the one that sounds the coolest. That that, that, that was not the case back then. If your church on the corner was a, a messed up church, hope you can help make it better. And the Corinthian church was one of those that were messed up people. Right? Full of rebukes. We got our passages from church discipline, a lot from his correspondence to the Corinthians. They were divided. They were divisive. They were celebrating certain sins. Messed up people. But he can still say of them that they're brothers. Why? Because of that verse. Their salvation is not predicated upon their performance. Their salvation is based on God's performance. And God is the one that seals, guarantees your inheritance through the work of the Holy Spirit. 
That doesn't mean you do whatever, sin against him, grieve him. It means the opposite. It means that if you've got that mark of, you're the genuine article. You've got God's brand on you. He's branded you and he sealed you. That means you're his. And if you're his, you work for him. You want to please him. You don't want to grieve him. You want to, you want to thank him, glorify him. You want to give him praise. But we're not supposed to be so busy trying to earn salvation that we forget to leave room for him. So busy trying to secure our own reason to boast in heaven. Well, how, how did you get here to heaven? Oh, um, God did 80%, I did 20 100% God. Praise goes to him 100% because he's the master craftsman and he put a seal on us. Brothers and sisters, don't have a spiritual paranoia about if you're in or if you're out. You should know if you're in. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and his work is secure, then you're secure. If someone ever accuses you of being spiritually arrogant for thinking that your salvation is secure, tell them no. Okay, don't say you're arrogant. Don't flip it back to them. That wouldn't be nice. Put it like this. I would be arrogant if I thought that I had something to do with it. But I don't. It's all God. And if God asked me, why should I let you in? You go, Jesus did it. You don't go, well, Jesus opened the door and then, eh, that's where the trap door falls out from under you. No, he doesn't work like that. You point to Christ. And so we have assurance of salvation because of the work, the seal of the Holy Spirit. I want to invite the worship team to come up. My hope uh, is that um, even if that doctrine rattles you a little bit, even if it's a little bit outside of your normal categories, I hope that you'll reflect on it. Go back to some of these verses that we looked at today because this doctrine is so refreshing, so burden-lifting. I want you to embrace it with all your heart, with all your mind. Um, Let's stand together and, and sing.